Well, we are week two in a new series entitled Doxa. I'm wearing my Doxa swag tonight. Can you see it? All right. Okay. Yeah, we, we have some. Info at citylifechurchva.com if you want some. Every one of these, I call them hieroglyphics, every one of these logos on the back represents one of the seven fundamental truths of Christianity. Our very own Justin White created each one of those. He's got some talent. There you go. He's gifted. Hey, this is the statement I introduced to you last week, that the seven core beliefs of Christianity, our doxa, I'm going to explain why we use that word in just a minute. The seven core beliefs of Christianity, our doxa, instruct us where to be just as much as they teach us what to know. Is, is it important that we know them? Yes. Is it important that we understand them? Yes. Is it important that we believe them? Yes. But, but if that's as far as we get, it's not enough. They, they call us to a place. They instruct us where to be. Here are the seven. They're going to pop up on the screen. God is one. The Bible is true. The cross is enough. Mankind is helpless. Jesus is life. Eternity is real. And the church is central. Do we believe more than those seven things as a church? You better believe that we do. But, but I would argue everything else in the Bible flows from these seven core doctrinal beliefs of Christianity. God is one. The Bible is true. The cross is enough. Mankind is helpless. Jesus is life. Eternity is real. And the church is central. Last week we did God is one. Tonight we're going to do the Bible is true. Each of these beliefs lead me somewhere. And when I wander from that place, or if I've never even been in that place, it will always create a feeling in me of being out of place. It will create a feeling in me of being out of place. This feeling of being out of place, especially in a spiritual sense, is an incredible gift that God gives to us. If we're not in the place that we're supposed to be in our relationship with him, something should stir inside of me. There should be a longing inside of me that is not satisfied. Listen to these verses in Genesis chapter 3, 8 through 9. I'm going to read them with you. It says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing... The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man. He said, where are you? They were out of place. Where are you? If you're unfamiliar with the story, this is in the beginning of time when God created the world. What Claire was talking about in her spoken word. So good. I know I'm a little biased, but I'm going to say it anyways. Come on. So good. This, this idea that sin entered the world at a moment in time. And, and, and when sin entered the world, something happened. The spiritual DNA, we're going to talk about that tonight, of Adam and Eve were altered and has now been passed down from generation to generation. They were out of place. They felt out of place. God's not asking the question, where are you, because he did not know. He, he's not asking the question, where are you, because he could not find them. He was trying to speak to the feeling that they had in their heart, and then he knew it was going to be recorded for us for all of time, and he was trying to help us understand the feeling that we sometimes, that sometimes it feels as though God is asking you and me, hey, where are you? Because we feel out of place. He's calling us back to a place where we should be. So doxa, 
We didn't take the time to talk about why we use this word in particular. So let's just give a little bit of time to that tonight. Where, where all my, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Anybody else grew up in the Episcopal Church out there? Anybody? Any former Episcopalians out there? There you go. All right, Christoph, come on. I, I know that there are hundreds of people online raising their hands all over the world. If you were in the Episcopal Church, you did not need a gym membership because we did burpees for an hour as part of church. If you want to know where burpees came from, it came from the Episcopal Church. Sitting and standing and kneeling over and over, Episcopals, Episcopalians are the skinniest Christians on the planet. We were in shape. Clearly, I'm not an Episcopalian anymore. If you grew up in the Episcopal Church or you grew up in some other type of mainland denominational church where maybe it was considered high church, it was considered liturgical church, then this word doxa maybe is strangely familiar to you because it reminds you of a song that's called the? Yeah, yeah see? All right, all you Pentecostals, you, you, you got a little church history in you? Right, right, so, so this idea of the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, Praise him, all creatures here below. You know it. It keeps going. It is, it is called the doxology for a reason. Now, there are many doxologies, but that is the doxology. A doxology is a liturgical expression of praise, and I would add an expression of praise that contains foundational doctrinal belief. One of the reasons why we sing songs of worship today is yes to express our praise, yes to awaken us to God who is always present with us in the room, but also to remind us what we believe, to teach generations that are coming after us what we believe. There are doctrinal beliefs that are in our doxological forms of praise. Doxa means to think. It means to suppose. It means to believe. It means to consider. It means to imagine. And all of these words should be true of us when it comes to what we believe about Christianity. The source word or the word that doxa come from, comes from is the Greek word dokeo. It also gives us the word dogma, which you maybe are familiar with that, this idea of being dogmatic. It is a decree or it is an ordinance. It means that there are things in Christianity that we should be inflexible about. We can be respectful. We can listen right, to opposing points of view, and I would say that's healthy. But at some point, there should be this final handful of beliefs that we say we cannot negotiate. And I would say these seven, they are it for me, and I hope they are for you too. If you're a word nerd and you begin to look up the word doxa in your study Bible, you will find that it's often also translated as glory. It's translated as splendor. It's translated as grandeur. It's translated as power and kingdom and praise and honor because over time that word began to take on, it evolved, it began to take on other meaning. But I like the way in which it evolved because if you understand the root of it, if you understand the origin of it, when you embrace these things that are true, guess what? It is glorious. It is splendid. There is grandeur in embracing things that God says are true. So this is ours tonight. Last week, God is one tonight. The Bible is true. Somebody say the Bible is true. 
Each week, I'm going to teach you a statement. Like last week, I taught you the statement that the oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others. That, that was a, that's a statement of truth that flows from this idea that God is one. Tonight, I want to, the Bible is true. And, and what I want to teach you, each week, we're going to teach you a different phrase that's connected to each one of these seven. Tonight is that God didn't create the Bible for reading. He wrote the Bible to recreate you. Right? He didn't create the Bible for reading. You might say, well, are you telling me not to read my Bible? No, that is not what I'm saying. But if you only ever read it, you haven't gone far enough. We're invited to this place of discovery. We're invited into this place of learning. We're invited into this place of learning because God wrote the Bible to recreate humanity. To recreate humanity. It's not informational, it's transformational. In 2021, about 50% of Americans said they read the Bible on their own at least three or four times, fill in that sentence for me, three or four times a, yes, a year. Yes. I was reading that, I thought it was going to say a week, a year. That percentage had stayed more or less steady since 2011, but in 2022 it dropped by another 11 points. Now only 39% say they read the Bible multiple times per year, just per year. It is the steepest, sharpest decline on record in Christian history. Currently only 10% of Americans report daily Bible reading. Before the pandemic, that number is down from 14%. 14% droppage for daily Bible reading. Church attendance pre-pandemic, on average, people that, that, that had a, a local church they called home three times a month. That was the average, right? Come on. Now it's 1.7 to 1.9, right? There's, there's been this precipitous drop-off of spiritual disciplines, what we call pathways, which is going to be the series that we go into next. This, 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 there's been this precipitous drop-off. And I think one of the reasons why there's been this drop-off is that during the pandemic, people began to realize that they were just reading the Bible informationally, but not transformationally. I, I think people began to realize that now that they weren't going into ch- to church anymore, this, this breaks my heart, that, that they realized that they weren't missing anything. That, that, that being not there and being there felt the same for them. Why? Because going to church for them had become a ritual instead of being transformational. Let's talk about genes. I'm not going to do my dad joke. You know you want me to. I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> Levi's. All right. No, not those kinds of genes. A gene is a short section of DNA. Your genes contain instructions that tell your cells to make molecules called proteins. Proteins perform various functions in your body to keep you healthy. Each gene carries instructions that determine your features, such as eye color, hair color, and height. So my genes, my genes said to me, my body, at 55, you're going to be bald, six foot three, and a dad body. 
right? That's my genes. Vanessa's genes said to her at her age, much younger than me, said to her genetically that she's going to be attracted to a bald man who's six foot three and has a dad body. She can't help it. I know. There is a genetic makeup to who you are. By God's design. By God's design. There are things that he put into us biologically and physically that determine things. This is, this is part of the nature that he created. Here it comes. You and I, when we were born into this world, we were born with a spiritual DNA, a spiritual DNA that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And it has been passed down from generation to generation to generation from the beginning of time. And when we make a vow of devotion to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes, lives inside of me. If you've never read in the book of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, you should read that this weekend. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, get about two-thirds of the way through, and you're going to find this page that says New Testament. Or if you're swiping and you just see this list of books, get to John in chapter 14, 15, 16. talks about the Holy Spirit, but then in there it talks about the Holy Spirit being in us. Not, not just with us, although He is. Not, not just before us, although He's waiting for us in our tomorrows. When we make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And once he gets there, he begins to do something. He begins to take this book, he begins to take this Bible, and he begins the work for the rest of our lives, rewriting our spiritual DNA. He begins to rewrite our spiritual DNA. So our soul, the consciousness of who we are, our physical bodies begins to break free from the DNA that we inherited from Adam and Eve and begins to cling to the spiritual DNA that we inherit from Jesus Christ. And then there's this back and forth that we're going to be in, this struggle that we will be in for the rest of our lives, trying to let go of the inclination of the human heart that's in us because of our humanity and begin to embrace the inclination that is in us because of who Christ is being formed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He uses the Bible to recreate us, you and me, to rewrite our spiritual DNA to become more like Jesus. Colossians 1, 27. For God wanted them, that's us, to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you, Gentiles. That's the biblical term for everybody that's not Jewish. We all get lumped in together. And this is the secret. Listen, Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. One translation renders it, it is the hope of glory. 
The Holy Spirit is inside of us, rewriting our spiritual DNA so that Christ can be formed inside of us so that we are no longer a slave and held captive to our sinful nature. Let's go to the next verse. You begin to put some of these verses together. It teaches you something. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. This is your child's confession right here. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with it. This should be a mural on the wall of the nursery. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable, miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about spiritual DNA. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. All of us were born into this world with the same spiritual DNA that we inherited from Adam and Eve. And Jesus says, I can change that for you. The next verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active. In the King James, it says quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit. In the King James, it says penetrating to dividing soul and spirit between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What's the writer of Hebrews saying here? He's saying when you and I are born into this world, the spirit is instructing the soul. There's a spiritual DNA that we have. And when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to use the word of God to change the influence, separating to dividing soul and spirit, freeing us from the influence that we once were held captive by that Paul talks about in Romans. So that now that the word of God, which is created not for reading, not for reading, but written to recreate us. And the Holy Spirit begins to use the truth of Scripture washing over us again and again and again. You have to take a bath, people, more than three times a year. Washing over us again and again and again and again. Changing, rewriting our spiritual DNA. Going back to those stats, we can change these trends. We can change these trends. I'm not buying into this belief that the church of Christ in America is adrift and is going to stay adrift. Is it adrift? I think so. Does it have to stay adrift? No, it does not. Because the people of God, the people in those churches can say, three times a year isn't enough for me. 1.7, 1.9 times a month isn't enough for me. I want to re-engage the pathways, the spiritual disciplines for the rewriting of the spiritual DNA in me. Because guess what, people? Just as your children have already inherited a physical, natural DNA from you at birth, you and I are responsible as Christian parents. And even if you are not a Christian parent, you still have a responsibility to impact the next generation that comes after you. That there's, there's something that we are tasked to do to show them how they themselves, their spiritual DNA can be transformed. In the Bible, being true leads the way. 
I want to recommend two books to you. They're right here. These are mine. Sometimes we give books away. These are not for giving away. These are mine. They're marked up, and you, I got bookmarks in there. But, but if, if, if you want to learn more about how the Bible came to us, if you want to learn some more about what we should believe about the Bible, these are two great books for where to start. Church History in Plain Language, I believe, gives one of the clearest, most concise and precise explanations of how did the Bible come to be the Bible. How, how did we get to this place where these are the books that we're saying God gave to us and other writings were not, then that's a great, if you're a history buff. If, if you don't care about the history and you're just glad we have one, right, but you want to learn a little bit more about, well, what do I believe about the Bible, then this book, The Touchpoint by Bob Santos is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. The Bible was written over a period of roughly 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. These facts alone make the Bible one of a kind. But there are many more amazing details that defy natural explanation. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest all penned portions of Scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history, giving spiritual and moral instruction, or pronouncing judgment. They composed their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile while writing history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverb. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It always agrees with itself. In Bob Santos's book, there are three phrases that I love that help me understand what I mean and what I want you to understand what I mean when I say the Bible is true. They are that it is inspired, it is infallible, and it is authoritative. Inspired means that I believe that even though these words were penned by many different people throughout history, it all has one ultimate author, and that's the heart of God. That the Holy Spirit inspired these people to give us these words. It is inspired. And because it is inspired, it is infallible, which means that it cannot fail you. There are a few things in this world that are infallible. And if it's relating to people, that's a big fat zero. Because all of us are going to make mistakes. The Bible is infallible. It cannot fail you. It cannot lead you astray. It cannot give you bad advice. It is never unwise. Now, for us reading the Bible... We are fallible in our interpretation of the infallible, which is one of the reasons why we should be in community so that we can look at each other and say, I don't think that's what that means. And, and, and for centuries before and centuries after, we're still trying to come into agreement with everything that we believe that this book says. I think that's part of the journey. I think that's by God's design. 
There's something that happens when we wrestle with one another. There's something that happens in the, in the tug and the pull. And even though we might not ultimately even end up agreeing, there's something about that journey that reshapes our point of view. We are fallible in our interpretation of this book, but make no mistake, the book in and of itself is infallible because it is inspired. Because it is inspired and because it is infallible, listen, it should be, in my life, authoritative. It should be authoritative, right? These build on each other. Meaning that when, when my life is out of alignment with this book, I don't turn the page because I don't want to see it. I yield myself to the work of the Holy Spirit inside of me to be recreated so I can come into alignment with it. This book was created by God, not for reading. He wrote it to recreate us, for us to avail ourselves to it, to yield ourselves in it, for it to reshape who we are, rewriting our spiritual DNA. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Last week, the phrase that I taught you was God is one. God is one. That the oneness of God reveals that the nature of God is to be for others. I taught you that because the more you reflect on the oneness of God, the more you realize that he is for others. And the more that you realize that he is for others, the more you realize he's for you. Not, not just for others, but for you. He's for me. And the more I reflect on this idea of God being for me, it draws me out of where I am into a new place, and that new place is called a place of trust. When we're not in a place of trust, we're in a place of skepticism. When we're not in a place of trust, sometimes we're in a place of rebellion. We talked last week that being in a place of trust doesn't mean that we don't have doubts. Doubts are okay. We bring our doubts with us into this place of trust. But when we're not in a place of trust, we will always feel out of place. We will always feel the voice of God saying to you and to me, where are you? The oneness of God draw, compels me to come in to a place of trust with God. The phrase tonight, God didn't create the Bible to be read. He wrote the Bible to recreate us, inviting us into a place. You see, every week, with each one of these seven core beliefs, there is a phrase that you're going to learn. There is a truth that we're going to teach you. And then that truth is going to teach you about a place where you belong. And when you're not in that place, it will always feel as though you are out of place. And the place that the Bible calls us to, because the Bible is true, is the place of surrender. It is the place of surrender. It is the place where we come to say to him, to the Holy Spirit inside of us, change who I am. Change who I am. Rewrite and reform my spiritual DNA, the hope of glory, Christ in me. Stand with me. God did not create the Bible to be read. He wrote the Bible to re- 
create us. In this closing song, I'm trusting that God's going to bring somebody to your mind. It might be yourself, but it might not be. It might be someone that you know. It might be someone that you love. It might be someone who's losing their battle within themselves. And humanity is winning the tug of war. May, may it be that your prayer would, would give some strength to the other side. So that the Holy Spirit inside of them, that they would yield themselves to his work. They would yield themselves to his power. They would yield themselves to his glory. They would yield themselves to his authority. And that wherever their lives, wherever our lives are not in alignment, that are out of place when it comes to the truths of God's word and all of the things that's in there, the boundaries and the limits, the hopes and the dreams, the purposes and the destiny, everything that's in there, the declarations and the warnings, that we would avail ourselves to them. Let it be, O oh God, that for the rest of our lives, never again, would this sacred text, these sacred pages, just be informational. May they forever be transformational, shaping us into the image of your Son and our Savior. Let's worship together.